Hello, Internet. It's Tori. You're listening to the Cosmere Deep Dive Podcast. For updates on when episodes go live, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. To join the discussion, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash CosmereCast, where you'll find an invitation to our Discord server. Thank you for listening, and please enjoy the show. We have two new patrons to thank this week. Coming in at the $1 level is Bill Gibson. Thank you for your support, Bill. And coming in at a hot and spicy $10 a month is Fel Knight. Thank you so much, Fel Knight. We really appreciate it. Hello and welcome to the Cosmere Deep Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Mike. Joining me this week are Dave. Hello. Craig. Hey. And Tori. Hello, Internet. Um, all right, so we do good thing first. Who wants to go first? Ooh, I'll go. All right, Dave, go first. My good thing this week is The Arithmetist by Brandon Sanderson. I bought it right before Christmas. I read it in two or three days, and I made sure to read it fast because my brother actually just got into Brandon Sanderson as well, and I wanted to let him borrow it before he flew back to Chicago. And when he got off the plane, he sent me a picture of him halfway through the arithmetist. A uh, really cool book. It's uh, like a cross between Harry Potter and Chalk Zone. A cross between Harry Potter and Chalk Zone. Yeah. I thought the arithmetist was Chalk Zone. I thought that was what we were talking about. Well, sort of. But I think Rudy Patootie can only make Chalklings when he's in the Chalk Zone. and. This, at least the first first book in the series, doesn't take place in the Chalk Zone, but in like the real-ish alternate universe world. <laughs> oh, I guess Tori didn't want to get spoiled by the arithmetist. Hello, Tori. Uh, yeah, so it's kind of like our real world, but an alternate version of it, where Japan invades Europe, and <laughs> it's just like not really important history of like the background of the book, but you know how Brandon always has the past, present and future in mind of his worlds when he's writing books. So in this version of the world, uh, some Asian countries took over Europe and King of England, like fled to America and they kind of grew up together as one country. And they're also islands instead of states. There's a really cool map in the beginning of the book too, with, Similar names to real life states, like there's one island is Georgia Bama. Uh, I think one is Mainford. There's, uh, I, and one that it's, it's kind of dryly funny. New York, instead of New York, they have, uh, New Denmark. Because as you all know from that song by They Might Be Giants, even old New York was once New Amsterdam. I'm sorry, New Holland, not New Constantinople. She'll be waiting in New, Istanbul. In New Holland, not New... not new. Uh... And suddenly we can't air this episode because of copy. I didn't sing it, and even if I did, I don't sound like they might be giants. <laughs> they might be giants, boy. That part I'll cut. Um, yes, I, I can definitely, as, as I've said many, many times on here, the arithmetist is by far my favorite Sander thing. And holy crap, it's so good. Uh, my first time when reading it. When does the it, come out? No idea. Oh. Uh, but my first time reading it was during a 10-hour car trip. And 
I read the book, like, start to finish during that car trip. My wife was a bit upset with me because I was reading instead of, like, interacting with her. Hmm. She brings it that's up often. Just, that's when you just read out loud to her. That's that's how my husband and I used to do before we had audiobooks because we had a terrible stereo in our old car. And uh, I would just read out loud to him. So, all right, Tori, do you want to go next? Sure, but preface it by saying I am having some connection issues. So if I fall off the Discord, just uh, edit that later. <laughs> and this. Uh, Right. So I found a book called Hearthstone, not Hearthstone like the game, but Hearthstone. And it's by L. Catherine White. And it's basically Pride and Prejudice, but with dragons. Because Pride and Prejudice and Zombies was not enough. Like if if you're a, a fan of Jane Austen and you love all the Pride and Prejudice fan fiction, then go and read this one because it's got dragons. Let's see, that'll make zombies, dragons, and giant brain aliens that have been crossed with Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> I'm uh, referring to an episode of Futurama. Because, you know, why not? <laughs> okay, does anyone else have any any input on Tori's good thing? That, no. That sounded like no. Okay, Craig, I believe you're up. Yo, I'm so excited. Um... I finally, like, two, three months after it came out, got to play the new Spider-Man game. It's so good, guys. It's a lot of fun. Um, you get to be Spider-Man. So, they... Okay, so... I don't... Mike, have you played it, or have you seen it played? Uh, I have watched a uh, pretty in-depth Let's Play of it. Alright, so... Um, essentially, this is... From what I gather, this is the Spider-Man game fans have been waiting for since like Spider-Man Two came out on PS2, because um, it had it has all of that web slinging, going around Manhattan, seamless movement and and the fun like it captures the fun. It has a good sense of humor. But the important thing for us is I really feel like they could adopt the system for a Mistborn uh, game. Oh boy. Like, Oh boy. Like, I was trying to think, like, how could you really seem to put in, you know, pushing and pulling? Because that's the important part. Like, if you really want to characterize a Mistborn, then you, you sort of want to have that. Because the other things you can do through other mechanics that you've seen in other video games, like uh, emotional allomancy, is just ways to configure um, a dialogue tree or something like that. But with pushing and pulling, that's how you move around. And it's like, I've had ideas before but playing the Spider-Man game and like how seamless it is to just swing on buildings. And yet there is definitely more control that you would you could have. Like you, you could sort of ignore it if you want, but you can direct Spider-Man to, you know, web to certain things if you really want. Um, and I'm like, they could sort of do that with pushing and pulling in Mistborn. Uh, you can just have a general like, Essentially, instead of swinging so much as you're pushing yourself around, but it works. But you can also push and pull specific objects based on what uh, you, well, the camera's looking at and things like that. I think it could work. Um, I mean, in general, I would love the game. But, okay, yeah, so in short, Spider-Man's pretty fun. I agree, and I feel like we've talked about this before. I don't know if we've talked about it on a recording or not, but like... I've definitely had the thought 
of you know a a Mistborn game sure using this engine. That. Yeah, um, but at the time, I don't think I knew. Like, I didn't know how it really worked in new Spider-Man game, so I probably couldn't provide input. But now that I played, I'm like, I think I could see how this could be tweaked and make it happen. Okay, I think it's my turn now. Is that yeah, yeah, my turn. Yay. Uh, so my good thing this week is the first in a fairly long series that I have planned of siblings who make things. Uh, so the first siblings that I'd like to talk about today are the Fairly Brothers, uh, who are, to my mind, the kings of dumb comedy. Um, some highlights of their of their like credits: uh, we have Dumb and Dumber. Kingpin, there's something about Mary, me, myself, and Irene, Hall- sorry, Shallow Hal, Stuck on You. They've done a bunch of stuff. Um, Stuck on You and Dumb and Dumber are my personal favorites from from that list. But like, uh, oh, it's wonderful. It's uh, Greg Kinnear and Matt Damon are conjoined twins. And you're saying this is a good movie? Oh, it's extremely good. It's it is very very good dumb comedy. Like the the actual height of dumb comedy, I think, like the the very tippy top, the best it can ever be was Tommy Boy. But this this is this is a little bit short of that, but it's still very, very good. And and these guys are like the best at at doing at making dumb comedies, basically. So who wants to talk about Mistborn? Me. Me does. Well, too bad it's Dave's turn. Dave, you read some chapters this week, right? Uh, yeah. Cool. Alright. So, and that's the podcast. Good night, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) I I also, I spent some time this week also theory crafting, and I've got some mind-blowing revelations, but I'm going to go over the chapters first. Tantalize. I expect to be mind-blown. Okay. It's it's going to be, it's so good. I honestly think that my predictions are going to be so accurate. You'll actually have to cut them out and put them into the spoiler section. But uh, anyways, this week we read chapters 18, 19, and 20. And here we go. Here are my notes from chapter 18. Wow. Okay. Zane, Ellen's brother, retrieves a hidden note. Bum, bum, bum. (laughs) Zane is emo. Zane has ATM. Condra Spy is a he. Straff drinks poison. Draft drinks antidote. Okay, so uh, here we I mean, go. We don't have to talk about anything else. That says it all. <laughs> well, there are a couple of things. First of all, this is I think the first time we as readers are wise to the fact that the Conjurer Spy even is with uh, Straff Venture. I don't think that was quite revealed yet. And actually, now that I think about it, I don't know if he mentions that the Spy is the Conjurer. That might have just been an assumption, or I don't know, but. Uh, whether Zane just uses a masculine pronoun because he doesn't know or because he, you know, he sees any Condra as a male or, or that the Condra's current host is a male, we don't know, but maybe, maybe not. So I'm kind of like, I'm putting Tyndall on the shelf now because of this pronoun usage, but, uh, she's still on the shelf. I'm not kicking her out of the balcony yet. Alright, so. That's good. This, uh, (laughs) this, well, she could just burn 
iron and or and float down and float down. Yeah. Um. Anyways, so my first note says, "Wow, okay," and that's because the first line of chapter eighteen is just like, "Kill him." God says, <laughs> uh, because this this part of the chapter is written from the perspective of Zane, and he's a little nutsy. He hears voices, voices that tell him to kill things. That's and... I, I like how politely he's just a little nutsy. Right, <laughs> he has the voices telling him to kill people. And a couple pages into this chapter, I was like, man, this is actually seems like this is turning out to be an interesting character like he's got a troubled background and he's hearing voices and he needs to find the strength to fight through it and then he and then he just turns full emo and he's like oh, you don't understand me dad only vin understands me You're like oh my gosh I was, he just went he went from like Kind of insane in an interesting way to just like full on emo archetype. I don't want to hear him talk whine anymore. Like just, uh, but I mean, to to be fair, he should be about Vin's age anyway, and Vin just sort of usually acts older than her age. Yeah. Also, he it is could a be teenager, like essentially Zane is a teenager. Yeah, I, he's also teenager. <laughs> I don't hate teenagers. Oh, I, I do. You should work more retail. <laughs> in the, you know, in looking over, over my life and my history, being a teenager sucked. I hated it. It wasn't bad at the time, but looking back, I was like, man, I had to like do stuff. I was, I felt awkward all the time, and I was like, eh, I like being an adult and not caring, like actually not caring what people think. Oh, and being yeah. able to do what I want with my money, like it's so much okay. better. I hated being a teenager. I hated it. <laughs> All those people who were like, these are the best days of your life. I'm like, Yeah, no, I want to punch those people. I want to punch Bruce Springsteen <laughs> right now. If you listen to this show, I hope not, because he could probably send a lawyer after me to punch me in the face. <laughs> the lawyer. <laughs> Dear the boss, in case you listen to this at some point in the future. He's like... You're, you're being indicted for defacemation, and he defaces me with his fist. None uh, of us so actually <laughs> want to punch you in the face, Bruce Springsteen. Uh, okay, so Zane's emo. Um, also, it could kind of play into the, his whole insecurity and in being jealous of Ellen and knowing that Vin cares for Ellen. So, I don't know. Um, but I, you know, I don't foresee a, a future with Zane and Vin, but I don't know. Brandon could throw a twist in. But anyways, Zane has ATM, and he and Straff suspect that Ellen and Vin have ATM. They are wrong, but they don't know it. And then they talk about the Chandra, or they talk about the spy, which I assume is the Chandra, and then the servant girl comes in, and Zane... I don't know. She kind of like comes in and wants to poison Straff, and Straff is kind of like thinks it's Zane trying to kill him. Which Zane at least gave her the opportunity. I think that's what it says. Like Zane gave this servant girl the opportunity to poison Straff, and he's like, "It's not gonna work, but whatever, you can try." Straff drinks the poison, and then he's like, "I've developed an immunity to iocane powder," and then Zane leaves. And then this other girl who's a, a former mistress, but too old for the likes of Straff now. Her name is Amaranta. She is an expert in concocting antidotes. 
and she gives him an iocane powder antidote. So, yeah, well, she must be at that. least twenty-two. Do you Far know too how old. old. He is, do, I, do I know how old Straff is? Well, no, no, no. How uh, old Straff is? How old the the uh, antitoxin lady is? Amaranta. Yep, that's the name. I I think that it mentioned that she was in her like late twenties. Yep. Yeah. Straff likes him young. I mean, this book was written by a Mormon. That's yeah, but Straff is a villain. You're not supposed to like go along with the things that he believes. Right. Oh uh, yeah. Okay. Just, just right. wait. Well, let's so see. Ellen is like eight, Ellen is like eighteen, right? So Ellen is a couple years older than Ben. Right. So he's like eighteen or nine. He's twenty something, isn't he? Okay, but... early twenties. He lists his age at one point. He does. I I, th- I thought it's just a few years older than Ben. I want to say something in the like twenty three to twenty five range. I also don't want to imply that all Mormons are into young, younger girls. Uh, that's just a stereotype. And I take back my comment. Okay, so that's chapter eighteen. So we have a little bit from Zane's perspective and a little bit from Straff's perspective. Uh, Shreff thinks everyone else is an idiot, um, and we're gonna see that Ellen and Gang are gonna try to play that against him. All right, so any questions about chapter eighteen? Uh, real quick, Vin and Ellen are four to five years apart from each other. Okay, and she's like, and and Mike, you're right. He's essentially around twenty-two. Sounds Vin like turns eighteen in the course of the book, I think. Yeah, I think she was sixteen at the end of Mistborn. Yeah. And then there a year passed. Okay. Chapter 19. Says oh, wait, 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 wait. Wait. What do you think about the revelation of Zane and Ellen being related? Eh. Okay. I mean, it's it kind of it shows a little bit of Zane and his jealousy. I Zane so first of all, I I didn't mention Zane and Ellen are half brothers. They both share Straff as a father, but uh, Zane's mother is a concubine, so he's he's not a legitimate heir to Straff's uh, property. And I, I, it's, I guess he's older. I guess he's, I guess he's not older than Ellen. You said he was a teenager. But anyway, he sees Ellen and he's like, oh, I'm a mistborn. I should be, I should be king. He Simba's all over him. But uh, yeah, so it it adds a little bit of tension there, which I think makes it more interesting. The little sibling jealousy there. Okay. Okay. All right. So chapter nineteen, Cezid runs out of steel mines. Uh, a week out of Luthadel, he sees an army. It's the Coloss. These are big blue dudes with Bean Syndrome. And then he runs into King Justice Lecao. So this uh, chapter introduces the Colas of Colas head munching the fame. Uh, they do not munch any heads in this chapter, but they are certainly painted as such that well, they, probably, they probably they uh, probably would eat munch heads. Uh, they are beating up each other just because they feel like it. Uh, they're like really weird. Basically, they have. They get bigger and bigger and bigger, and then their but their skin doesn't get any bigger, so it starts off drooping and it gets all like tight on their face. Uh, this uh, this 
I think as a coloss on my cover of Hero of Ages, and it must be an older coloss because his skin is stretched tight and Ben's like standing on his back. Um, but yeah, they have Bean Syndrome. If you've ever read any of the Ender's Shadow series by Orson Scott Card, you might know that uh, there is this uh, traits that uh, Bean and his progeny have. Is this spoiler territory? Should I not talk about this? Go ahead and spoil the Ender's series. It's not. It's not super plot relevant. It's kind of like when they explain about uh, Bean's condition and the condition of his offspring. Basically, they just get bigger and bigger until they're too big for their heart to keep them alive. And too it's... big for their britches. <laughs> too big for that blood-beating bridge. You know, the secondary butt heart. So, yeah. But anyway, they just... They get to be about 20 years old or so, and they just get too big for their heart to pump blood to their bodies efficiently, and they just die. But they get really big and mean and tough in the process. Okay, so it turns out that King Justice Lacal, she might remember as one of Ellen's inner circle from Mistborn, is now calling himself King. And he, again, is about a week outside of Luthadel, not quite caught up to Straff and Set, but he hopes to harness the power of the Coloss to overrun the city. And he as well doesn't really have that uh, good of an opinion of his good friend, Ellen. But uh, anyway, they let he lets Sazed go, I think. I didn't write that down, but pretty sure they let Sazed go at the end of Chapter 9. So, they... so I have to say, I like how you're pronouncing his name. It's a lot better than what I was thinking. What? It actually Just sounds sort of regal call? when you say it. What, uh, Jastis Lekal? The, the audiobook pronunciation is Jastis. That's not fine. I, I, used to, I would say Jace. Like, that's what I Jastis. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Jace. Jastis Lekal. Justice. Justice. Justice Legal. Oh, Ace Attorney. <laughs> Objection. Oh, Ace Attorney. Speaking of Orsier, why don't you continue to chapter 20? He doesn't say anything in that chapter, but he's there. Yeah, but he's there. <laughs> okay, so chapter 20. Vin doesn't know how to feel about Ellen's transformation. Ellen plans to bring Vin home to meet his father. Vin notices Breeze soothing Ellen. So uh, we have Ellen going over the plan with his crew, mostly Dachshund, and talking him into letting King Ellen and Vin go to visit Straff's camp, uh, mainly just as a as as the crew calls it, to scam him into thinking that Ellen is on his side, so that he will go and turn on Set's army, and of course he's going to go play Set's army similarly and just have them fight it out. They're going to turtle while the other two uh, armies <laughs> beat each other up. That's their plan, and. And in this process, we have uh, Breeze kind of soothing out Ellen's nervousness, giving him a hand, even though he's outwardly objecting to what Ellen is saying and arguing with him. Uh, you know, he he wants to help Ellen to enunciate his stance without, you know, feeling too nervous to talk about it in detail. and. This does two things. Vin uh, 
grows a little bit of respect for Breeze. She sees that he really cares about people and, you know, he's not just in it for the challenge. He's more of a humanitarian than she thinks, you know. And also, very importantly, since Breeze is affecting Ellen's emotions with Alamancy, this rules out Ellen's as the Condra spy. Uh, we already knew that as readers, but now Vin feels a lot better about it. Well, it also rules out Breeze because he's actually using... Right. It does also rule out Breeze, though he was never really a suspect. But if if there was any suspicion on him whatsoever, it would be cast out by this. Okay, so then we have the other scene in Chapter 20. Pinduel comes back in. And here we go. Ellen is an embarrassment. Tindwell <laughs> makes sure that Ellen really loves Vin. Dumel comes in and says that Breeze's spurned lover is here. Uh, so we have just a little bit of review. Ellen's like, how'd I do, Tindwell? That was pretty good, huh? And she's like, you still suck. Uh, you know, you got to dump Vin because it wouldn't be seemly, blah, blah, blah. And Ellen's like, no. And Tindwell's like, okay, I was just making sure you really loved her. Um, <laughs> I mean, I hope it was stronger than... No! Well, she makes the point that Ellen never really stands up for himself, even when she's tearing him down constantly. But when Tindwell says a slight insult toward Vin, Ellen just stands up and becomes confident to defend the woman he loves. And uh, speaking of loves, Demo comes in and uh, talks about uh, Set's daughter, Princess Set at and she's here set to see at. she's set at she's here to see Breeze. <laughs> oh Speaking boy. of love, everyone's favorite character, Demu. Yeah. I love that Conjure spy. Oh snap. I mean, he's a pretty he's a pretty big candidate right now for Conjure spy. He cannot be he's not an allomancer, so they can't rule him out that way. So, it's I think that it, I think that Sanderson's at least going to play up suspicion on Demu at some point, even if it doesn't turn out to be him. I think he's a good suspect right now. Okay. Are you done with your chapter summaries? It kind of seemed like you were. Yes, I am done with the chapter summary. Dude, All right, I'm so, ready for the theory. Okay. Nope, nope. Hold on, hold on, hold on. No theories just no. yet. we got to cover uh, our bases. First, who is your top contender for Condra Spy? I mean, probably Demu. All right. Uh, second... Who is your current favorite character now that you've gotten a little more insight into a few people? Mm, I'll throw that up as a toss-up between Urso and Seizet. All right. Um, <laughs> okay, so... I mean, Urso is, is, is really good. Up to this point in the series... you command me to believe it. <laughs> all right, up to this point in the series, Kolos have been mentioned a few times now. Generally with, like, a sense of, of impending dread attached to them. Now that you have seen them in print, what do you think? Do they do they live up to the hype? I think that they are physically intimidating, but I don't really see them being organized enough to be a threat against a large army and tactics. Uh, so I guess they mentioned him before as how, you know, the Lord Ruler kind of relegated them to the South Pole and even the Lord Ruler was afraid of them, it's said, but, you know, I, they're just kind of like, 
They're kind of, they like the ogre, like the ogre with the two heads in Warcraft too. This way, no, that way. You just, I've got the brains, no. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how they came off to me. Yeah, really. I can see that. <laughs> and actually, the ogre mages in Warcraft Three and in WoW are blue, so maybe they're actually ogre mages. But no. But but it, it's very descriptive in what they look like. It's sort of disgusting. Yeah, they're like, all they have like a skin face. suit. Yeah, um, I would like to point out that like in the audiobooks, um, whenever the Koloss speak, the voices that are done are so incredibly good for them. Ooh. Tori, you want to back me up on this? Uh, yeah, the voices are kind of like rumbly and subhuman and. I, I feel like the narrator, uh, Michael Kramer, does an excellent job on, on basically everything he does, but uh, with the Coloss especially. Okay. I think we've uh, preambled enough. Give me that theory. Okay. Ready, guys? Spoilers. Right, hold on. I'm, do I need to put the spoiler tag up? <laughs> Bam. Right. I'm sitting down, but I'm on the edge of my seat. All right. So, number one. Vin's mother was a Farukaman. And I think if we're going to have some kind of big reveal of really monumental importance of Vin's earring, that's pretty much a gimme that Vin's mother has to be a Farukaman. Uh, second, I, I have a guess as to which attribute she uses bronze. Remember, this is a bronze earring we've, we've learned recently. Which attribute is stored in the bronze? And I think that bronze is used to store sanity. So Vin's mother was storing sanity into the earring, and obviously as she's storing the sanity, she is at the time losing it on the outside, and that's why she goes crazy and tries to kill Vin. And I think they do say Vin had a little sister that she did kill, or was did she think that was her little sister and it was her mother who was uh, using... Farukami to draw age out of another piece of jewelry. I don't know. And they just didn't see her anymore. Wait. Uh, okay. Alright. So, Vin's mother is a Farukamist. She stored sanity into the bronze earring. Okay. And I did go back into the fight scene of Mistborn, the fight between Vin and Lord Ruler, because, as we recall, the Lord Ruler was wearing bracers that was storing his youth or he was drawing the youth from. And I, I couldn't find any point during that scene where it mentioned what material those bracers were made out of. So I just wanted to make sure that they weren't mentioned to be bronze bracers. And it's at least not mentioned from what I could tell which metal it is that stores you. So that's still not on there. So bronze stores sanity. Now, furthermore, I think that ferrochemical stores can be passed down to your progeny. Nobody knows this because all of the known Farukamists are eunuch. So now we have a bronze earring that is filled with sanity that can be passed on to somebody that is a child of Vin's mother. And who needs sanity the most? Zane. So Vin's mother was a Farukamist, stored sanity into the bronze earring that Vin is wearing. And at some point, she is going to pass it on to her half-brother, Zane, so that he can have his sanity restored from wait, wait, what's wait, in this wait, earring. Wait, wait. I'm, I'm lost again. Go back? What? Zane is Vin's half-brother. They have the same mother. Okay. 
and they're going to find out that he can tap into the bronze that Vin's mother stored into the earring, and he's going to need it. <laughs> Mike says Zane is Vin's mom's daughter's mother's son. <laughs> Vin? No, just Vin's mom's son. I mean, I wrote it in general discussion, so you can read it yourself, but you'll get it. Okay, uh, was yeah, there yeah, any more yeah, to the theory, it. or do we have all of the major pieces? Um, that, that's basically the full theory. I, I, I will also point out, just in case you guys were worried, uh, Vin and Zane, being half-brother and half-sister, does not make Vin and Ellen related. They still have two completely different sets of parents, in case right. you were worried about that. Vin has her mom, the slave, and... Uh, the obligator, head obligator, dude, and then Ellen has Straff and Straff's actual <laughs> legitimate way. <wife. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, Mike. Thank you. Why don't you read what you wrote there, Mike? No, you yeah. can you can read it, Dave. <laughs> Craig already read it. Vin plus Ellen not equal to Vincest. Oh my gosh. Yep, Veland is perfectly valid. Okay. So, um, so what I do you guys think about? I, I what, like do you, what do you think about my theory? My my mind is honestly blown. <laughs> you you did say it would be mind blowing. <laughs> I think I mean, it's I very think interesting, is... and I think we need to move on to spoiler territory in order to discuss it properly. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, I like where your head's at. I think this is a good storytelling device. I guess. I do actually have a question about how does one actually store age into ferrochemical metal? Like, how do, how do you get ahead of the game? Like, how does Lord Ruler end up being older. a thousand years old? Yeah, but how does Lord Ruler end up being a thousand years old? That's just like, how did he possibly store up enough youth to make that work? Unless uh, Ferrochemist can actually use Allomancy to fuel their Ferrochemy instead of drawing the trace himself, but then why is Lord Ruler seen to be sitting around as an old man? Yep, those are questions. But, or did he possibly have some youth-stored medals passed down to him from his ancestors? So the only thing I will say is what you know at this point, which is to store any attribute, but the store age is you spend time being older is how you store it, and then you get to be younger when you tap it. Yeah, but how does that let Lord Ruler be a thousand years old? That is all I will say at this point. Uh, okay. Raffo. Raffo. All right. Uh, does Waffle. anyone have anything else for Dave before we get rid of him? Do you have any more theories for us, Dave? I want more. I'll cook him up. Okay. All right. I think it's, I think it's a Dave-free time now. Alright, thanks Dave. Bye Dave. Uh, enjoy, enjoy talking about my theory behind my back. Thanks for the fun theory. Alright, we are Dave Free, and thus we are in spoiler territory. This concludes the spoiler-free section of our podcast. If you are, as I am, reading along for the first time, we recommend that you stop listening now, as the following will contain spoilers for not only this book, but for other Cosmere books as well. There may also be general spoilers from any other source material. Spoilers begin now. Uh, so, first off, Dave not understanding how the Lord Ruler kept himself young is exactly what I've been talking about, how the end of the first book does not explain compounding anywhere near well enough. It doesn't. 
And I don't think we actually get that information until Seized says it in Hero of Ages in the um, epigraphs. Well, Seized explains it more, but like you're supposed to be able, like you have enough to put it together. It's just not explained very well at the end of the book. No, it's not. I, I will admit that we learn more about compounding as it goes on, especially when we hit Era 2, because we can actually have people compounding. Yeah, um, Alloy of Law is is straight up like, it is the, this is how you do a compound. This is how compounding works. Right. Um, so, Dave's theory, huh? Like, so I like that it's it has some depth to it, so I could understand if this is how uh, Furukami actually worked, Wait, sorry, Ferrukimi. Fer I don't know how to say it properly. Um, sorry, Tiro. Uh, how it's like he says it's past thumb, which isn't how Ferrukimi actually worked. But if he made that assumption, I could sort of see where, right? Like it's it's he has some assumptions. He takes it. What does this mean? And he it has a story. Like I could see a different author writing that kind of story. Yeah, right. I could see that. I mean, I could see Sanderson writing it if that's how, like, Furukami actually worked. I, I could see that story being told. It's a little cheesy with Vane will, uh, Vane. Zane will be saved in the end, but, you know, it's got so, some teeth to it. So, yeah. Um, basically, no, no parts of Dave's theory are correct. But we admire his enthusiasm. See, the, the thing that Dave is missing is that he doesn't know anything about, uh, Hemalurgy. And you Correct. don't get to find out about that until book three. And this is something I was thinking about recently since I, I've reached Hero of Ages in my reread. Um, each book focuses on a different um, a different magic system that's, that's on Scadrial. So book one was about Allomancy. Book two is about Furukami. Book three is about Hemalurgy. So we get to look at all three of the metallurgic, metallistic Whatever. The three metal arts. One for each book. And Dave doesn't have that information just yet. So I he like... doesn't know. But he's still thinking about the earring, which is great. Yes. But he's I was... not forgetting the earring. He's focusing on the fact that it's bronze. So that's good. Yes, I was I was very happy that he's still paying attention to the earring. Um I had something else and now it's gone. So Zane, huh? Okay. What about him? Um I feel like without the spike, he would be one of the most mentally stable people in the entire Cosmere. Because yeah, he's he, basically, for his entire life, had someone all the time in his ear saying, Hey, kill that guy. Yeah. And for the most part, he ignores that. And dude, what would that do to you? You. You so personally. He, he definitely does a great job at ignoring that voice in his head. And we've already seen examples, for example, Marsh, of having a voice in his head, but not knowing that it's not his, and therefore acting on it. Then again, Marsh is has a bunch of spikes, so he's more easy to control. Um, Zane has one spike, uh, but he's still able to successfully ignore that voice that he deems as God, which he knows it's not him. Then again, I'm not entirely convinced Ruin's trying very hard with him. It doesn't really matter what Zane does as long as he creates chaos, which is exactly what he does. Zane does what Ruin needs him to do at this point. Oh, 
I just I just thought of I have a small debunking of uh of one of the core pieces of Dave's theory. Uh okay. He says that we've we have yet to see a ferrochemist um that has kids except Tindwell. Yeah. Yeah. She has kids, but I think what he was saying is we haven't seen I guess a kid interact with a parent. I don't know. Have we got to the part where they mention that she has kids? Oh, maybe uh, not. Did we not get oh. that explanation when she like first showed up that she was a breed? No. I honestly don't remember. It's not no. until later, so he might not know that yet. Okay, well then, objection rescinded. With the information Dave has, his theory is 100% solid. <laughs> so yeah, so Zane, I can see what you're saying. Like, he would actually be very, very sane if he didn't have that spike. Like, he is actually rather sort of calm and collected given what he had to go through. I mean, po- after the spike, I think he would make an excellent skybreaker. I think he'd actually be like, that's the low one, right? Um, I mean, the biggest thing there is you don't trust your own your own mind and your own judgment, so you seek some sort of external guideline. Right. right uh, in yeah. Zane's case, he follows Straff. So, yeah, he'd be, he'd be a pretty solid skybreaker. Although he doesn't necessarily want to. Because he I mean, does feel like he should be better. Since when does that matter? Yeah, true. I mean, Teft straight up does not want to be a Windrunner. And yet... No, no, I'm not debating on that. I'm talking about Zane working for Straff. It's it's funny that he talks about how much he feels Mistborn should be better and removed. And not just be a tool. And yet he still makes himself be a tool. Oh, he doesn't believe that even even sort of. Like, just look at his actual actions and choices. All he's doing is trying to talk Vin into, like, leaving the city. He right. he does not believe any of the things he's telling her. I mean, honestly, he just wants to shack up with Vin because the voice does not tell him to kill Vin. Yes, also that. So he just wants to be saved by Vin, power of love. But yeah, no, the Zane is 100% spouting nonsense. That he does not believe. Dude, real quick, and I, I sort of, I, I mean, I have lots of thoughts when I do my rereads, and it's just a shame that I'm ahead of where we are in the recording, just because I want to make sure I absorb it all so we can talk about it. Uh, and of course, I'll catch up with the chapters, uh, reread them. But there is a really interesting part in Hero of Ages when Reen starts talking at the very beginning of the book, when Reen is talking to Vin in her head. And it's so obvious that it's not Reen at all. Because it's talking about ATM. Like, where's the ATM? Why would Reen even know what those words are? Well, okay, he might know what the word ATM is. But still, why would he care? You could tell it's Ruin, but at the time, you probably don't think about it during the first read. So I'm really, really excited for when Dave gets up there and what he thinks. If he even notices, that is. I have a chicken-egg scenario for you. Yeah? Uh, so we know that at least some of the times when Vin thinks sort of in Reen's voice in her own head, it's, yep. it's actually her and it's not Ruin. Yep. Um, and it sounds like Reen whenever it's, you know, like paranoid and concerned about your own safety over all other concerns. Does it sound like Reen? Because that's the voice that Ruin had been using. Or does it sound like Reen because that's how Reen talked? 
So my theory for that is that anytime it's about something that she might have been taught growing up, uh, keep in mind that Reen saved Vin when she was like six or something. Uh, well, at least he claims that he saved her. So he's been teaching her for, you know, eight, ten years, something like that. And so any teaching that involved her trying to survive and how people will ultimately betray her and that sort of thing. That's Reen's teaching. So when she thinks of that, it's in his voice because that's what he taught her. So I think it's just if she happens to be remembering a lesson, then it's an actual memory of what Reen taught her. But over time, of course, that's been corrupted and changed because uh, Ruin puts new words in there. Okay, but that wasn't my question. My question was, does Ruin use Reen's voice? Because that's how Vin was already thinking. Or do Vin's thoughts come in Reen's voice because that's the voice that Ruin had been using her whole life? I think it's the first one. Okay. Yeah, I think it's the first one. Alright. Um, what else do we have for this? For these chapters? We get the introduction of Alrien. We do. We get all, So is it Alrien or not Not Alrien? Rien? Rien? What? I remember it from the audiobooks as all Rien. Tori, you're you're our expert here. Mike is correct. I used to call her all Rien because I like to mix up my letters. We'd notice that. But uh yeah, all Rien. Like Mike said. I didn't know how to pronounce Hermione until I listened to the audiobooks of Harry Potter, so No, but they teach you that in book four, because he goes Hermonini. And then she actually spells it out, her Hermione. Right. But I'm also dumb sometimes, and I I do have trouble, like, turning any sort of, like, phonetic spelling like that into the sounds that it's wanting me to make. Yeah. So, yeah, that that whole section was very confusing for me and did not help even a little bit. So, yeah, um, I think eventually we'll figure out, or at least, uh, Dave will get an example of bronze. I'm not sure. If, I, I, I think they might talk about bronze being used later on because there's a point when Tinwill and Sazed are working together, you know, doing their research and they talk about being awake. So they might mention bronze at that point, which will sort of shoot down his theory that bronze stores sanity. So he'll have to tweak it. I don't know what he's going to do at that point. That might be the point he chucks it out the window. Yeah, maybe. So eventually we learn that bronze stores wakefulness, which is what it actually stores. Um, and of course, as far as we know, descendants cannot use parents' minds, but that's because of identity. And of course, we don't get to see more of that until Eric 2, when we have the Bands of Mourning, which don't have an identity attached to it, and therefore anyone can use Yay, Era 2. Very excited to get to those. Yeah, but we got... I'm excited for Warbreaker, honestly. I want to see what he thinks of that book. That's that's one of my that's the one I reread the most because it's a standalone, but it's also Sanderson. So if I need my Sanderson fix, I would I read Warbreaker. So on your on your idea or not your idea, but your your statement that each of these three books covers a magic system, Allomancy, Ferrochemy, uh, hemology. I wouldn't say covers it, but it it sure. sort of describes it, yeah. I think we can extrapolate that to uh, Era 2 as well, because Book 1 okay. was compounding. Yeah. Uh, compounding, and then also just the 
interactions between Allomancy and Ferrochemy. Yeah. Um, because, obviously, uh, Wax makes excellent use of, uh, of both iron and steel in, in either magic system. Sure. Um, book two, then, would be um, God Metal Adjusted Hemallergy. Because that one's all about uh, Wax's old girlfriend murdering people. Yeah. Uh, And then book three would be identity-free metal mines. I I feel like it's a little less like these Error One books are made. Like, it's it's very clear that's the theme of the books. I mean, definitely just because, like, we have our established, you know, magic systems already. Yeah. Yeah. But it is, like, focusing on certain things aspects of the magic system in those books. I can I can see an argument. Which then makes me wonder, I mean, I'm assuming that he'll sort of continue this trend Don't all the way through to the end of Era 4. But yeah. then, at that point, like, what is there left to do? Dude, there's always more. There's always something else. Like, just seeing the interactions between the metals, like, we're learning stuff that we didn't even think about in Era 1. Like, in Era 2, we are experiencing more and more and i feel like the the play with connection and identity and even we still want that we haven't seen anything with fortune yet aside from what hoy does with fortune which is not even necessarily allomancy there could be another way he does fortune but there's uh, so allomancy doesn't do anything with uh with fortune yeah I know, except no, in yeah, the except in the case of like fortune. um compounding potentially um, but yeah, th- there's just there's just so much more there, and I think we're gonna go into it more because he has Sanderson has to set things up because somehow by error four, our people on Scadriel will be spaceborne, and they're gonna use some form of the m- metallurgic arts to do that, some combination of it. Yeah, um, it's exciting. I'm, I'm I'm super excited for error four because we're gonna get. Mistborn in space, and like that's so cool. I'm oh. excited to get surprised by um, Era Two Book Four, like just sure. just showing up like in September with no warning. I mean that that's what happened with Book Three. It was just like oh, and here's Book Three, just a couple months after Book Two. It's like what? Nice. Um, so go, going into an earlier point where you mentioned how maybe the people who use Furukami in Era 2 are Tindwill's descendants, uh, I have been keeping an eye on on when the books talk about the Terrace people, uh, mm-hmm. because they are heavily killed off by the Inquisitors at the beginning, well, at the end, throughout the course of Book 2 and the beginning of Book 3. Um, so, like... Also, that's a big question, why they leave Sezed. Like, he's, like, the only known keeper, and they keep him around for some reason. Possibly because he's either, like, physically close to Elend and Vin, and so they can protect him, or when he's not, he's away from any other Inquisitors? Yeah, no. Eh. Dude, the Inquisitors can just easily get anywhere they need to go. I mean, that is not an issue. I I and, don't have a proper answer for it. Like the best I've got is is some is just like well, if they did, there goes the ending. Sure. Well, so I I posit a theory that Ruin feels Sezed has he 
Ruin feels like Seizet has a purpose. Keep in mind that throughout the end of book two and book three, Seizet forms a connection with Ruin. He has to in order to be able to pick up the shard. So he already had a connection with preservation, as do most of the people on Scadrial, because they're more preservation than Ruin. But Seizet has to have a connection with Ruin as well in order to be able to pick up that shard. So he's forming that connection, and perhaps Ruin views Seizet as a tool. He can't directly control him because he's not Spike, but he still thinks he's doing what he needs to do for Ruin's plan. So he's going to leave him alone um, and and let him continue. I mean, through the events of this book, we know that Seizet is very largely responsible for like releasing Ruin, so I don't know. Maybe Ruin is like, you know what? That guy did me a solid. He can yeah. live until everything dies. No, I don't think Ruin's like that. I don't think so either. But, uh, yeah, especially right now where we are in the reread, um, he's definitely doing Ruin's plan. Eventually, Seizet starts thinking about things more, and, of course, Marsh is sent to stop him from from reaching Vin and warning her in the first place. Um, but, yeah, outside of that, it's sort of like they they round up all the other Keepers so that way they can superpower the Inquisitors. But they leave Seizet alone. Uh, but yeah, so a lot of the, the, the terrorist people that survive, like their eunuchs, which I assume maybe Harmony fixes during the the Scadrial reboot 2.0. 3.0? It might be 3.0. Because Lord Ruler would be 2.0. So during the Great Reboot, maybe maybe Seizet fixes the terrorist people. Um, but we already I have a lot of them, so. like their Chandra. Well, Misrace are the original Keepers. We had a lot of them killed off. So, yeah, maybe Tinwell's progeny do are the ancestors of people we see. I did want to also, sorry to go off on a tangent and talk about Breeze. But is, is there if there's anything else you want to talk about? No, let's talk about Breeze. I like what he does with Breeze. Like Sanderson, the author. Um, it's It's just really neat to see, like, you see what Breeze really is like. Like how he interacts with people when, especially when you get his his point of view chapters, and like what he thinks and the way he he acts says one thing. Whereas, of course, he tries to come off as he doesn't really care; he's in it for the challenge. But in reality, he cares very much about people, and he wants what's best for them. And you see him do that a lot through the course of the books, and it's a really nice touch. Um, I'm actually curious how much Sanderson plan. Uh, for Wack to be a descendant of Breeze in the first place. Or if that's sort of like, I need someone in the crew who could potentially have a kid. Oh, look, Breeze and Aurian. Let's let's do it. I mean, I feel like he would have used Ham, except that Ham doesn't have a last name, as far as we know. Okay. So we sure. could do Waxilium Ladrium, and, you know, you can... Oh, yeah, hey, that's... He must have descended from Breeze, because that's that's Breeze's last name. Yeah. Whereas Waxilium Hammerson. Which Breeze would certainly be made a noble with the Lord, Lord Mistborn's court. Well, Breeze was noble before. Yeah, well, I mean, okay. The Ladrians are nobles in Era 2, which of course was after the reboot. And I could see, you know, Breeze being... I'm noble still, 
after the reboot because he's close with Spook and Seizad. And so of course, Spook, Spook would have been handing out titles left and right because that's how you get the girl. <laughs> okay, sure. Come on, he spends he spends a, a big chunk of books two and three being like, hey, can you just give me a title, please? I really need to meet a girl, and if I'm a lord, that'll come across way better. Okay. I mean, he's a teenage boy. Which I still That's don't just... understand why Ellen couldn't give him a title. Like, like he he makes some noises about it, but like he never actually does it, and he doesn't give a good explanation for why not. Well, so I don't see them interacting very much in book two. They don't... Like, Spook is... And, and this is... I think why he has more of a focus in book three, but he's just sort of in the background still. He's there in book two, but he's not going to do very much. And, and it wasn't until book three where he's actually a spy sent on a mission to go do something that he finally does something for the group. And maybe if that had turned out differently and Ellen actually survived, Spook would finally have a title. I mean, he gets a title. He, he's Lord Mistborn. It just, you know, takes harmony to do his thing for that to happen. Spook's the leader. I'm sort of curious what Spook's story would be after, you know, the world reboots. I'm expecting that we're going to get a pretty good chunk of that either in book four or as, like, Mistborn Secret History Part 2. Because right. we like, know he gets together with Kelsier and they eventually go off to the South Pole and stuff. Yeah. Stuff happens related to the bands of mourning somehow. Stuff. But he essentially saves the people down there because they were not made to handle the changes or something. So, hey, why don't you help out Harmony and help build these people and go do that? So that's pretty cool. That is an excellent point. Once he gets a title, he gets a wife. <laughs> Who is his wife? Is Oh wait, no. We do. We do meet her. She's Elder. she's what's her face from book three. That's right. Elder. I don't know how to say any names. Why am I saying names? I actually don't remember how to pronounce her name. Tori. Uh, yeah, I don't remember it either. Look, I'll spell it. Super cool. L D R E. That's all I know. Yeah, that's the name of the girl. Yep. I'll just call her Belle. That sounds Good. great. Belle like Gra. Go with that. Um, but yeah, yeah, you know, they, as far as we know, they get married, but, you know, we don't fully know what happens afterwards. The point is, um, may, I, I don't think Spook is given a title simply because he wasn't really around to, to warrant a title while things were happening. I mean, Ellen is king, but then he's dethroned, so it's not like Ellen could just pass out titles at that point. And eventually he's emperor, but by that point, the world's starting to end, so they got stuff to do. There's no time to just start handing out titles. But then there's also no reason not to. Yes. I, I, I think it's Ellen views Spook as a kid, like the beginning of book three. Like, he's still a kid that works with the group. He's he's just attached because he's been there for a while. Sure, but at the same time, here, have a title. Okay, well, why don't we take it up with Ellen and say, yo... Why didn't you give our boy Spook a title? What's up with that? All right, I will add it to my list of questions if I ever get to go to another um, another signing of these are things that I should ask Brandon. Yeah, we could ask Brandon. He he might have a 
a good reason for it. Or maybe a not so good reason. Because, you know, sometimes people do goofy things that are not for a good reason. And uh, that is a perfectly valid reason. Top of that list, by the way, what's a half beard? <laughs> All right. Uh, does anybody else have anything? Because um, I'm kind of feeling feeling like well, I'm ready to be done. Out that in Ellen's new government, where, where he's emperor, He's not exactly throwing around titles because it actually is still, at least around Luthadel and the Inner Empire, it's set up like a democracy. Like it, well, not necessarily democracy so much as it's set up in his new style of government. So he he's an emperor, but he's not trying to be 100% tyrannical. Then again, you know, Sezid is the chief um, ambassador and all this other stuff. So who could be chief spy? I don't know. I feel like there's an element of nihilism to this whole thing where everything's everything's going like the world is ending or there's a giant army camped outside of our city that will kill us all. So yeah. why not? <laughs> By the way, my brain goes there's a giant army camped outside the city. So seriously, there's no time for titles right now. Get out of here with your title requests. I think I feel like it goes the other way. There's there's no like there's nothing we can do to keep this from eventually happening. So why why not? Why not give Spook a title? The world is ending. We can see it ending. We can watch the ash mounts explode for you know weeks now. Why not? He wanted this. I have the power to do it. There you go. Your lord, enjoy it for the next hour and a half until we all die. So um, one other thought I had, and this is more because I'm playing Spider-Man, but Spook is sort of Spider-Man. And he he's flaring tin all the time, so he has these weird, like, extrasensory perception related to his senses. And that sort of allows him to be all sneaky stealth-like in weird ways. And I'm like, you know, if you were to characterize Spidey Sense in Allomancy, it would be Spook. Yeah, I can get behind that. And and I, I actually, I think Brandon does a great job explaining what that means when we finally get uh, Spook's chapters in book three. Because it's like it's sort of like okay, you get the explanation of what Tin does based on Straff and Spook in the first few books, but you don't really get to see what it means, especially to flare it. So, all right, I'm gonna go ahead and call it there. Cool. I am ready to not be recording okay. anymore. Uh, I will point out that. Not next week, but the week after, we might want to consider doing an extra chapter because uh, part two, was it part two ends on chapter 27? Uh, we just need to do three and four. It can be four and then three, or it can be three and yeah. then four. It doesn't really matter. I was just going to do three and then four. For whoever determines what chapters to read, that's something to think about. And also, uh, Dave and I will be away next weekend. So we probably can't record unless we record earlier in the week. Um, I mean, that generally causes some scheduling issues. Uh, yeah. Why don't we just call it a week off and I will see if I can't get a an editing schedule back together. And I'm still recording and I shouldn't be. So let's say goodbye. No, we don't need to talk about this. Okay, goodbye, Internet. Bye, everybody. Bye. This has been the Cosmere Deep Dive Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at, at CosmereCast or like us on Facebook. Our theme music is Traveling Made Up Continents by Gillicuddy, used with permission. 
Hear more from him at the Free Music Archive. Thanks for listening. Thank you.